Welcome to the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival podcast series. Brought to you by 720 ABC Perth. This recording was taken during the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival and has been made possible by the Perth International Arts Festival. Welcome to this session of Bibliophiles. My name's Kate Kennedy and I'm delighted to be um, the chair today for this session. Picture you this, you're at a dinner party, <laughs> the conversation turns to books and what books we love, what books we felt have guided our lives or influenced us. People say, which five would you take to a desert island perhaps if that was you and you have a lively, energised discussion. You go home happy, half past three in the morning you wake up and you think, wait a minute, where's a pencil and paper? <laughs> <laughs> if this sounds a bit familiar, I think you can safely say, I am a bibliophile. This is what it's like, isn't it? I'm not going to take up too much of your time this morning because we have four very interesting and energised writers today to talk about how the books that they've loved in their lives have influenced their work and in which ways those books have been a big influence on them. Our guests are Jane Gleeson-White, Mark Trudinik, Serge Jones or Sarah Jones and Andrew Nicholl. Our first speaker, our first guest is Jane Gleeson-White. I think it would be safe to say that Jane Gleeson White knows her books. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's the author of, uh, of two sort of great books which are, which are compilations. One's called Classics and one's called Australian Classics. If I tell you the subtitle of Classics is Homer to Midnight's Children, you'll get a sense of, uh, of just what, a, what a, a, a wide and eclectic reader she is and what her amazing sort of range of influences are. If you're lucky enough to catch her... Uh, Mianjin lecture during the festival, um, you'll know that she presented a talk which, which talked about the sort of the long, glorious, multifaceted tradition of literature where, where you know, historical books sort of stand on each other's shoulders and, and we sort of form this enormous kind of global, you know, sort of reach of, of all the literature that's happened in history and how it all kind of comes together. Um, I won't take up any more of your time. I'll just let Jane speak for herself. Would you please welcome Jane Gleeson-White. Thank you very much, Kate. And um, it's lovely to be here. You know, what an exciting thing to be asked to do, to speak about books, which are my passion, as Kate has indicated. I'm actually not going to be speaking too much about how the books have influenced my work because my work is about books. So, I mean, it's sort of um, a given that they've influenced my work. Um, I haven't yet written a novel, and maybe that would be a different talk that I would give. So I'm going to slightly distinguish between the three um, uh, words in the title of the lecture of the of the um, talk which are influence inspire and affect and so I'm going to talk mostly about the books which have influenced me um, and I think that that you know I'm using that as the strongest um, effect that, that that books have had so these are the books that I read as a teenager and they're not the five books that I would take to a desert island but they're the books which completely shook me up um, so I am a, I'm not even sure I'm a bibliophile. I think I might be a bibliomaniac because I studied books at university. I then became a book editor, a bookseller, um, a book reviewer, and then I write, wrote books about books. And I even met the love of my life in a bookshop. So, you know, I have an appalling sort of book mania. Um, so the first person I'm going to talk about today um, is the very controversial in when Mark saw that I, he was on my list he said um, you must teach me how to like D.H. Lawrence so D.H. Lawrence <laughs> is the first writer who really knocked me around and we were given his sons and lovers to read at school and I was about 14 which I think is the perfect time, I'm sorry to say, Mark, to be introduced to D.H. Lawrence because um, especially when, uh, you know, I was at a boarding school in a very cold, bleak world, um, two hours from the nearest city, very isolated, um, very long, wet weekends in which we did nothing but read and dream. And I was preoccupied at 14 with all the teenage things that we are pre- preoccupied with, which was mostly boys, sex, passion, love, um, and 
all of the above multiple times over, and I found an answer to that need in D.H. Lawrence. Um, so it was really, really absolute love at first word with D.H. Lawrence. Um, I think I fell in love with his passionate engagement with sex and his analysis of relationships and his sense that um, love and sex were deeply intertwined. I found that very compelling. And I, I loved his close analysis of relationships between men and women and siblings and fathers and sons, um, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives. Um, and I also loved his sense of history and the way that he wrote about nature and the way that he so beautifully articulated the encroaching industrial world on England. So he has, you know, all his novels have this big sweep of history and I really liked that as well. Um, and then I read all of his works and this one here, which I brought, not in its original copy because the original one I read has fallen apart, but it, I still have it lovingly tied together with bits of lace, <laughs> um, which I, it was too precious to bring. Um, so this became one of my all-time favourite novels and I reread it now and then, each time thinking that I might have become like Mark and just unable to read because it's quite cloying prose. He does go completely over the top. He does preach and pound his fist on you know, the pulpit but each time I still find something to love. Uh, so I think the best thing to do to convey that is to read the opening lines of this um, chapter one of Women in Love. And I should say before I do that I have a sister to whom I'm extremely close and we talk at length about um, everything, but especially about love and art, as um, these sisters do. So, chapter one, Sisters. Ursula and Gudrun Branwen sat one morning in the window bay of their father's house in Beldover, working and talking. Ursula was stitching a piece of brightly coloured embroidery and Gudrun was drawing on a board which she held on her knee. They were mostly silent, talking as their thoughts strayed through their minds. Ursula, said Gudrun, don't you really want to get married? Ursula laid her embroidery in her lap and looked up. Her face was calm and considerate. I don't know, she replied. It depends how you mean. Gudrun was slightly taken aback. She watched her sister for some moments. Well, she said ironically, it usually means one thing. But don't you think anyhow... I'm sorry, I think I've lost my place. No, no, no. But don't you think, anyhow, you'd be, she darkened slightly, in a better position than you are in now? A shadow came over Ursula's face. I might, she said, but I'm not sure. Again, Gudrun paused, slightly irritated. She wanted to be quite definite. You don't think one needs the experience of having been married, she asked. Do you think it need be an experience, replied Ursula. Bound to be in some way or another, said Gudrun coolly. Possibly undesirable, but bound to be an experience of some sort. Not really, said Ursula. More likely to be the end of experience. <laughs> so, so, you know, that sort of palaver, I was absolutely all for that. <laughs> um, so yes, locked away at boarding school, as I felt I was, um, I found my first sort of answer to the life I was missing, I thought, um, in D.H. Lawrence. And then, strangely enough from this distance, because it seems inexplicable, um, I found um, my next passion were, was um, the French writers Sartre, Camus, and Jean Ennui, who's a playwright. Um, but they completely knocked me sideways with their political engagement and their close sort of analysis of the moral choices we make and how we live our lives. I think that was probably the essence of their effect on me. And also, I was completely besotted with the French language and, you know, I was, I was reading them in French and it just seemed to me to come from a world that was so far away from where I was and that was the world that I wanted to be in. Um, so I was very um, taken by the beauty of their prose, although actually I don't think Sartre's prose is that beautiful. Um, but, and of the three... Um, of these three people, there's really um, Camus is the only one that I still love, and I love him for his the heat of. I don't know if anyone's read The Outsider, but it's just one of my favourite novels. And I, I suppose growing up in Australia, 
um, heat is such a big part of our lives and, and Camus was writing so beautifully um, about heat and the strange things it does to our minds which is pretty much what The Outsider is about in a nutshell but obviously a lot more than that um, and I loved Sartre's The Age of Reason for its fierce portrayal of moral choice, freedom and individual responsibility I, I loved his rigorous mind and the way he analysed people's lives to the minutest level you know, every choice they made they had to be answerable for and um, you know, living an authentic life. I found that very compelling. Um, but the character who most captivated me was the idealistic, headstrong Antigone from um, Ennui's play of the same name. Um, I found her refusal to compromise exhilarating and her determination to do what she felt was the right thing against the laws of the state. Um, I, I found that um, very exciting and inspiring. Anyway, and I'll just read one of the things that Antigone says, which kind of um, crystallizes why I loved her so much. She says, I want everything of life. I do, and I want it total, complete. Otherwise, I reject it. I will not be moderate. I will not be satisfied with the bit of cake offered for being a good little girl. So that spoke volumes to me at 16 or however old I was. Um, and then a bit later, maybe at 18 or 19, I read um, Tolstoy's War and Peace and I just fell completely in love with all his characters and with his extraordinary, like D.H. Lawrence, but much grander, extraordinary vision of history and his analysis. I loved his um, application of differential calculus to the movement of history. I just, every page was like a whole volume and it's still my favourite book in the world. Um, so... Yeah, Tolstoy um, and War and Peace have never left me. So these, uh, you know, so these five stories have completely shaped the way that I've lived my life. They've prevented me from, you know, using my economics degree to become a rich banker. They've <laughs> kept me true to, you know, my sort of moral core or whatever. Anyway, but you know, I thank them for that mostly. Um, and beyond these five writers who struck me so much as a teenager, there are many books, as I'm sure for all of you, and given that I've written book, you know, this book is about 62 books and my Australian Classics one is about 50 books. So, you know, they're, you know, that's, how many books is that? 112. So, you know, I could talk endlessly about books. Am I talking endlessly, Kate? No, no. no. Just... Um, <laughs> um, so there are many other books which have inspired me, um, which have left me with a truth or an idea or just a sensation of something or, you know, I mean, um, I think every single book leaves me with something, even books I might not particularly love. And I think that's probably why I've spent my world, uh, my life in this small ambit or actually enormous ambit of books. Um, and these books range, I'll just name a few, I won't talk about them, but they range from the Iliad to the Idiot, from the Mists of Avalon to Underworld. And they include books, I love theatre, and they include um, plays by Shakespeare, Strindberg, Oscar Wilde, Tennessee Williams, and books by Freud and Jung. I'm very into chunky nonfiction. Um, and also biographies of my favourite people who are mostly um, leaders in history and artists. So people from Alexander the Great to Catherine the, the Great, Leonardo da Vinci to Frida Kahlo and Andrei Tarkovsky. Um, and then there are the books which have affected me. Um, and these books are really precious to me and they've touched me deeply or moved me. They're the books that sort of give me consolation and I could tell immediately which ones they were when I looked on my shelves because they're the ones at hand's reach from my desk. And they're all very um, shabby and their pages are thin and, you know, they've been well read. So they're mostly poetry. Um, and among them are T.S. Eliot, especially Four Quartets, and William Wordsworth, and Vincent van Gogh's letters to his brother Theo, mm -hmm. which are just extraordinary. Beautiful. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's read them. That They're beautiful. And these are the books I sort of go to in distress. They calm me and comfort me, and I think that's why a lot of them are poetry, because I think the rhythms... I often read the, the poems aloud, and, and they're very consoling. Um, so, yeah, that was... Do, yeah? yeah? I just... I can just sing a note to the most interesting ending. Oh, because so I mentioned this person yesterday and someone said I saw people's eyes look horrified that you were going to give some... No, I was just going to leave it out today because... Um, well, I, okay, so finally one last book. <laughs> um, and I, was, I looked up 
the word effect in the Oxford Dictionary because I was thinking, how can I put this book in the effect thing when it actually sort of knocked me out and sent me to bed for several months in a sort of crisis. Um, and then I saw that effect can also mean attack as a disease, and this is what this book did to me at about 19. Um, and that's Karl Marx's The Communist Manifesto, which, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily espouse his principles, but his analysis of capitalism I found so shocking and so compelling, it sort of hadn't occurred to me that this world that we live in might have just been, you know, some arbitrary system rather than, or, you know, which was able, which had many flaws. And anyway, so for the first time I sort of stood back from the very, you know, uh, foundations of the world that I was living in and thought, oh my goodness, you know. So Marx, I, I still think Marx is an extraordinary economist and um, I still like him enormously, but I'm not about to incite a revolution, so you can all feel safe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll finish there. But, you know, for me, you know, I, I started reading passionately probably. I mean, as a child, I read Greek myths and, and all that sort of thing, but, you know, my adult reading life really started in this tiny, bleak boarding school and, you know, uh, my books have taken me all over the world in my head and in real life. You know, most recently I made a snow-bound trek through in a, someone driving me at 120 k's an hour over black ice with no um, traffic signs or anything from Moscow to Yasnia Polyana, which is Tolstoy's house. So it was like a, I thought, doesn't matter if, I, if we crash on the way home, but can we please just get to Tolstoy's house and then I can die. <laughs> Isn't it, um, isn't it revealing hearing people's <laughs> loves and passions? Um, one of the nice things about uh, Jane's book, Australian Classics, as well as being a sort of a superlative compilation of all different authors' um, works, is that it's sort of interspersed with other Australian authors' uh, favourite lists of books, and it's a very revealing collection indeed. It's fascinating <laughs> seeing what other writers list as their favourite books and their biggest influences. In fact, this happened with our second guest, um, Mark Chudinik, when I asked the writers to please send me in an email just a, you know, a few books that they've found influential and what they've liked. Uh, Mark sent back and such an enormous list. I think it might have been five pages long, and I was thinking, it could be a performance poetry piece, perhaps. This is a very hard thing to, to whittle down, isn't it? We just have so many things in our lives that we just love. I'm interested to see what, which ones Mark's managed to discipline himself to, <laughs> to get down to. <laughs> Mark is a, is a poet, an essayist, and a writing teacher. He lives in the um, highlands southwest of Sydney, and his books uh, include the Little Red Writing Book, published in the US and the UK as Writing Well, The Essential Guide, The Land's Wild Music, and A Place on Earth. He's currently um, uh, he's about to publish uh, in June this year through Oxford, uh, through sorry, University of Queensland Press. Uh, the landscape memoir called The Blue Plateau, um, and he is uh, no slouch in this field, having received probably every major essay and poetry award to do with nature writing and conservation writing in Australia. Uh, there's a lot of them on this list. He's also working slowly, he says, on a, on, a, on a book called Reading Slowly at the End of Time, also to be published through University of Queensland Press, a book he describes as a book about the consolations of literature in a frantic age. It's beautiful, isn't it? Would you please welcome Mark Shredinik. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, everybody. Um, and hello. There's a nice um, link there through Mark's. M multiple. They will look at the colour of this, of course. <laughs> when I was coming here in the bus the other day, um, the person sitting next to me who... Oh, it doesn't matter if she's here, but... She didn't know who I was, and she said, what was I coming here to do? And I said, I'm here to run uh, a writing workshop called the Little Red Writing Workshop. And she said, this is interesting, she said, so is it about Marxist writing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Marx was on my list um, as well. But, uh, I mean, I did have in mind when I wrote that book a notion of uh, radicalism, and when we launched the book, I spoke, I called my launch speech a quiet manifesto, partly <laughs> with, you know, Marx in mind, it... it um, that was a place I went in my university uh, life uh, as well. But uh, Marx didn't make my final 12. What struck me when I was asked to be on this panel was that um, the books one reads over a lifetime vary, and there are some that you, uh, you loved as a child, and they did something very important for you, but they probably, some of them may not make 
you know, the grade these days in terms of your view of great literature, um, it also struck me that you could tell your life through the books that you were reading at certain stages. So the list that I actually uh, constructed was that kind of list. I did it partly for myself, you know, the author as a child and what was he reading and so on. I might just go through some of those, certainly not, not all of them. It's interesting how many you get uh, when you attempt that exercise. It's interesting also how many you forget. Kept ever since I put the list together, I keep thinking, oh, damn, there was... Where's you know, that pencil and paper? Yeah, <laughs> where's, you know, the leopard, which I know my friend is going to read from. Um, the other night, I was in the bath reading a book, a thing that doesn't happen as often as it should, and I won't tell you what the book is or who it's by, whom it's by, but um, my uh, wife asked me how the book was going, how the novel was going, and I said, oh, I don't know. She said, what's the matter? And I said, too much story, not enough writing. Too much story, not enough writing. Now, that's the kind of writer and reader I am. I'm becoming, as I age, increasingly intolerant of books driven by narrative in which the, the writing doesn't kind of cut it. Um, I would acknowledge bias there. We're not all like that. You're looking at a poet um, and you're looking at an essayist of a fairly lyric kind. Um, I'm well known for making a whole lot out of nothing at all. <laughs> but then much of the literature, certainly not War and Peace, which makes a lot out of a lot, um, and is one of my all-time uh, favourite books as well, and is profoundly full of relationship and character and narrative, things that normally aren't quite enough for me. That's on, on my list as well. But... The books I, I'm left with, the ones that have changed me, have changed me at a deep cellular level because of their music. The music, I think, of the voice and the mind of the person talking with me. And I always forget the plot lines. Some of them. I remember the mood and I remember the way I was changed. In my little red writing book, I actually have uh, a, quietly, a quiet little manifesto where I say, you know, looked at properly, I suspect the true narrative of any book is not the story it tells, it's how it changes the reader. That's its real narrative. It's how it reaches in there and makes us a different person than we were. We always read in some degree to find out who we are. Um, we read, I suspect, uh, to... Well, we may not intend this. We think we're just going to have a good time with the narrative, but... Uh, when books stick with us, it's because they've taken us at the same time as far as it's possible to go outside ourselves and at the same moment as deep as it's possible to go inside ourselves. It's a famous thing. C.S. Lewis uh, once said about uh, reading, I think it, it gets a line or two in that movie about him and joy. What's that called again? Yeah, a lovely, lovely movie. But, but he says, um, uh, he, he wrote once that, I am never more myself or less myself at the same time as when I'm, when I'm reading. That's the same point. Um, reading, reading well and reading slowly, the point of my title is that reading can be seen one way as a practice of slow living. It's a, kind of, uh, it's a way of leading a life, not all of one's life, but it demands a certain slowness and it demands that we stop and shut up for a bit. Um, and listen, oddly enough, then we end up conversing. And if a book is really good, we write it. You notice how that happens? It's kind of our book. It's almost as though we're, 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 we're running the narrative line here. Um, I want to get to uh, my top 12, maybe some of the books that I read along the way. I'm a poet, so I can't resist reading you a poem. Some of you in this room have heard this, so forgive me. But on that score, actually, that would be my measure of all the books that are, that are, that are great. They bear rereading. They're never finished with you. You can't put them down. In fact, I'd almost go so far as to say some, many of the books on, on my list of the best ever are books that I may never have read once from start to finish. They demand a lot of you. They, too much. They demand too much of you. Many of them on the list I've fought with at first as well, like relationships in one's life. Sometimes the great love affair begins with the tussle. Not always, but, so, but sometimes. As Joseph Campbell uh, once wrote, you know, the cave you most need to go into is the one with the dirty great monster at the opening of it. And you don't want to go in there, but you need to go in there. And it's been my experience often that I've struggled for 50 or 60 pages with a book that's then changed my life and was fighting with it for the first 60 um, poems in particular are on my list as a poet. I think those will be the things I'm left with at the end. Um, uh, somebody, uh, what, what's his name, the great, uh, Ray Fawn Williams, the great English composer, was, uh, was once asked what music he would take with him to heaven. And he said, ah, but heaven is music. For me, my answer would be heaven is 
Well, a combination of music and poetry. For me, poetry is probably the thing if I really had to choose. But, of course, poetry is a kind of vernacular music. All good writing actually is, but some prose is more profoundly driven by the narrative, and so you hear less of the music, and I, I do want the music. It's another thing I've always remembered reading in a memoir by James Salter, a North American uh, short story writer, a very, very good one who's not very widely known. He tells a story in his memoir about um, a prospective um, student at our, coming to a famous writing school, the Iowa Writers' Workshop, I think, in the States, and he, was, he thought he was pretty hot, and he was kind of trying to suss out the lecturers to see if they would be good enough for him. And one of them asked him this question. He said, um, apropos of you know, why he wanted to study writing and write, he said, do you love sentences? And the guy just walked away. So he hadn't actually ever thought about that before. I love sentences, too. I, I love sentences more than whole books, I've got to tell you. Um, that's what it's all about. One makes even poems out of fine sentences. I don't know if these are any good, but here are some. This is a poem. I'm reading it because it's about books and, and life. Uh, in a way, am I nearly out of time? I probably am. Aren't I? Oh, okay. This is called uh, Maybe. I should just say I was inspired to write this poem by reading uh, um, Anthony Mingel, isn't it? His book, his latest book is called The Library at Night. He's written a lot about reading, a history of reading. Uh, it's a lovely, lovely book, flawed. I love lovely flawed books. I haven't finished it either, but it's got these most incredible chapters and passages in it. But this is the way it often works for a writer, which many of you would know, and it's another thing to say, that one reads... Uh, in order to keep going with one's writing life because there's inspiration in there and it often comes from the weirdest places um, and you get halfway through a sentence and put the book down and start writing something. That's what happened with this poem, which has been through now six or seven drafts um, and I hope it doesn't seem that way. Maybe, maybe each life is a book borrowed when it's dewy decimal numbers up and read aloud perhaps or in awed or sullen silence left out sometimes by a child in the rain and returned when its due date falls to the great library of souls. This might be me then lying open at page 110 on a desk and whoever's reading is having trouble following. The afternoon is another man's wife, all saffron and semtex and charoscuro memories of sex beneath a ceiling fan. She's the sclerophyll scent of the illiterate scrub, the beginning of the end of everything. A piece of which flies now like a blue moth across my pages, flipping them this way and that, teasing out more time for me in the middle of my days. The light is hollow and combustible, the grass dead or dying, the ground hard as hearer's heart, and now my daughter, her hair an unmade bed, carries her heart back from the underworld, down the path to the shed, she comes in tears to let me know I'm not the hero of her story, uh, of my story, or hers. I am the story, alone from eternity. So I mark my place, or someone does, and I take her up and hold her till the story picks us up again. <clears throat> but how long does each book stand on the shelf before? How long does it stand there after? So here's my list. I should go to it. The consolation, the uh, reading slowly at the end of time, this is my, the, my pitch to my publishers. That's what a successful pitch to a publisher looks like. Uh, uh, by the by, what have I done with my files here? Um, uh, apart from being in its beginning a kind of quite personally inflected reflection on the nature of reading and the reading life and an argument for reading as an aspect of the examined life um, is then a kind of tongue-in-cheek self-help book um, and it has titles like How to Love Two Women at Once and How to Be Lonely and How to Get Lost, How to Lose Your Way and Never Find It Again, stuff like that. The one thing that you can not rely on literature to do is make you happy. Um, happiness is a false god. Yesterday in a poetry session we were asked, uh, Robert Adamson and I, neither of whom has written a joyful poem in our lives probably, um, what we had to say about joy. And it did occur to me, um, there was a, an odd Twitter when I read that poem, um, 
the, the place it comes from can be a place of sorrow and depth, but uh, you can, can, readers can find consolation. That was the word uh, that, that um, Jane used, and it's there in my, my subtitle as well. Consolation, is, consolation comes from reconciliation with the truth, not from denial of the way things actually are. So, so the book proceeds in that... In that um, yeah, I do. I did find it. Thanks. So I put, I'll get to my top 12 and just sort of rattle through them. I love that idea of doing this as a performance poem, but I'm now way out of time to do it. It would have been quite good. But I organized my life into, and my reading life into uh, chapters that go, one, when I was a child, uh, two, the artist as a young man, three, university days, which are, were Graham Greene to a large extent in my case, and some poets, publishing days, and then after publishing, learning to write, because one reads differently, I think, in, in becoming a writer. Then becoming a poet, I read differently um, again. So the books on my learning to write list include a lot of fine essays, Montaigne and to Barry Lopez, uh, and quite a lot of uh, nature-oriented uh, uh, writing, a genre that we're very unfamiliar with. I keep writing about it in Australia, hoping that it'll catch on a little bit more, but it's not environmental writing as such. It's not exactly what James Woodford does. Um, it's the, some of the most poetic writing around. It's just that in, it engages with the life of the more than merely human world. And then I've got some things I've been reading lately that include John Berger's great book, Photocopies, um, John Berger, some of you may have read Raymond Carver's uh, poems, All of Us. I've been rereading Raymond Chandler, who's just one of the best. Um, Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift. Uh, and I finally got around to reading Omar Khayyam's Rubaiyat and the Bhagavad Gita and Richard Yates's Revolutionary Road, which is swooned over by legions of uh, writers, and I now understand why. Um, and a gloomier book you could never find anywhere. Here's my 12. This is what I'd take. I think is what I thought when I wrote to you anyway. The Bible, not for faith, but for writing. Karen Blixen, out of Africa, just for giving us sentences like I had a farm in Africa at the foot of the Ngong Hills and I have a song of Africa, but does Africa have a song of me? Listen to them. It's the rhythm as much as anything. Boris Pasternak, Dr. Zhivago. Wow, I'm still in love with Julie Christie, of course. Uh, that's part of it. Uh, wonderful, wonderful book. And the politics, as well, the pol politics of the private. I learned a lot of things from that book as well as how to love two women at once or not. Annie Dillard, a great North American writer who wrote Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and An American Childhood, which would have won her the Pulitzer if the previous book hadn't won her the Pulitzer. If you want me to write memoir, read Annie Dillard's The American Childhood. Jim Galvin, a writer I much uh, admire and love. His prose book, The Meadow, is a wonderful book. No one knows it much here, but it's, it's astonishing. It's the kind of uh, writing that a poet writes, uh, kind of prose a poet writes. Robert Gray, because he taught me how to write poetry, the great Australian poet. Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It, uh, which before it was a very good film, was, was uh, a heartbreakingly beautiful, wise uh, book. Cormac McCarthy, because he's the best. Uh, the Road, because it's perhaps the most recent and heartbreaking, but you could choose any of them. Uh, Cheslav Milosh, because he's a great poet. His book, his anthology, A Book of Luminous Things, uh, because it's a very beautiful thing to do to write your life story by choosing the poems that have made you who you are and their beautiful poems. Michael Ondaatje, uh, The English Patient, if I had to choose. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, because I can't leave him off the list. Really, I always feel I have to apologise for liking Tolkien, but he did change me in certain ways. I guess I'd take The Hobbit um, because it's shorter. Uh, and finally, Charles Wright, a poet we should all know much more about, uh, an American poet who certainly, when I read Wright's poems, I discovered a form and a voice in which I recognised myself, and that can sometimes be, you know, reason enough. So I should stop. Thank you. Thank you. There we have one avid reader. Yes. <laughs> Our next guest to speak today is Serge Jones, whose uh, novel, Red Dress Walking, is a feature of the festival this year. Um, she has written to me um, and saying, I want to talk about the direct and osmotic influences on this novel, Red Dress Walking. I love that idea that the things we absorb are sort of by osmosis, like we're some kind of permeable membrane and, and in, in come these influences leaching into us in a kind of visceral, physical sense. It's beautiful. Now, she cites a few literary heavyweights as influences, Evelyn Waugh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, but it is the seminal figure, she says, of Emily Bronte, 
who she's used uh, very consciously in her novel, As You're Here. Would you please welcome um, Serge Jones. Thank you. I'm beginning to think there really is an uncanny political theme running through here Red because my, my book, of course, yes. Red Dress Walking, <laughs> no coincidence. When I was asked to speak on this topic, to be perfectly honest with you, I swooned because this really is my idea of heaven. <laughs> I am a bibliophile from the word go. Uh, my dear mum, who's actually here in the audience, says I practically came out of the womb reading and I, I just <laughs> haven't stopped. So this is just such a joy for me to be able to talk about this with like-minded people. Several years ago at the festival, I was lucky enough to hear the English writer Chris Cleave speak and he said to me, you know, I'm a reader before I'm a writer and that is entirely true of me. I would in fact go one step further than that and say I'm a writer because I'm a reader and I can actually pinpoint the exact moment where that bridge between reading and writing occurred to me. And it did involve Emily Bronte, who remains a massive influence on my writing and I think on my understanding of human psychology. I was 15 and I just finished reading Wuthering Heights. This book did really, really strange things to me. It was the first book I couldn't let go. I'd finished it, but the process of engaging with it stayed with me long after I'd closed the book. And I kept asking myself, why is this book, why is this inanimate object exerting so much power over me? How, how does this work? And I thought, well, perhaps it's because it's this incredibly audacious story. We're told it's a love story, but for me it looks a hell of a lot closer to psychosis than love. <laughs> It's a, it's a story in which the heroine is killed off summarily in the first part of the book and the so-called hero then spends the rest of the book wreaking this ghastly revenge on everybody else because of his unconsummated love. I think it was, it was the critic Jane Smiley who said, look, no other book in the language cares so little for its reader than Wuthering Heights. And I certainly felt like that as a reader. I felt she was doing strange things to my heart and to my mind. And in an effort to exercise that power, I tried to get underneath the story. I wanted to understand how she had done it. So I took to this book with a microscope and I began to notice some really, to me, very interesting things. And I, please forgive me, my book group colleagues who've heard me wax lyrical on this before, but if you go to the very centre of Wuthering Heights in terms of the chapter that sits at the centre of the book and you unfold it, what you discover is that this book is the perfect symmetrical novel. Everything that unfolds in a linear sense up to the centre of the novel then unfolds backwards until the end. So you almost get this feeling like you're standing in a hall of mirrors. And this happens generationally in the novel. Um, there's this eerie repetition between what happens to the characters and that symmetry is uh, repeated between cousins, you'll notice. And this was a revelatory moment for me. This was an epiphany moment because I thought, this isn't the act of a medium. This isn't some divine inspiration that I can never hope to achieve. There's craft here. There's discipline here. There's a structure here. And that moment was the moment the light bulb went on in my head. Because if it's craft and if it's technique, God damn it, I can learn it! <laughs> that, that really was, I think, probably uh, the central moment of my life. And the moment where... I understood that my relationship to books could be the relationship of both reader and writer. And it's a relationship that I continue to explore. Twelve years after that epiphany, 
I began working on my first novel, Red Dress Walking. And I discovered again that Emily Bronte had been acting in me at a cellular level that I wasn't even quite aware of because I wanted to construct a female character with a very specific psychological complexity. Um, for those of you who haven't read my book, the, the main female character, Emily, has been subject to a really ruthless revisionism in her life. Her mother, the very complex figure, has totally effaced all memory of the father. Uh, he disappears from Emily's life at a very early age and she's left with this void, really, of denial that he ever existed. She knows nothing about him. So I thought of her very much as somebody in whom a giant hand has reached into their subjectivity and just wrenched it out. And I thought, what would you fill that with? Now, fortunately, my, not coincidentally uh, named heroine Emily, has a very functional response to this. She fills it with art. She fills it with literature. And she fills it to such an extent that the characters that she reads about in books assume a flesh and blood dimension in her life to the point where um, she's doing inane tasks like grocery shopping and she'll say, oh, look, there's Viola, uh, there's uh, Viola from um, Il Barone Rampante. This, this division between her lived life and her artistic experience completely dissolves. And of course, the perfect model for this kind of heroine, ta-da, is Emily Bronte. Uh, if you're not familiar uh, with her biography, she led what was in many ways a very insular life, very functional person. She ran the Howarth Parsonage for her father. She was a, a wonderful cook, a wonderful housekeeper. So she had this extraordinarily practical element. But her fantasy life was so rich and so lush and so nourishing that these two worlds entirely collapsed. I'll give you a, an example of this. She um, went on a visit to York uh, with her sister Anne, one of the very few holidays she ever took in her life. Now, if you or I, I imagine, had gone on this trip and we wrote a diary note about it later, you know, we would have said, oh, saw the York Cathedral, fantastic, had dinner at the hotel, super food, shocking service. But Emily's diary paper says, Anne and I went to York. Along the way, we were AGA, Zamorna, Rosanthia, and Agamemnon. She says not a word about what she's seen, about the actual physicality of this world she's in. All she's interested in are the fictional characters that she's been playing out as they go on this jaunt. I was really interested in this dissolving process between art and life as it's lived. And, and that really became the model for my Emily, who is quite a functional person. I don't think she's insane in the classic sense of it. She's quite aware that her psychology is unusual. But if you have an entree to this kind of world, to this kind of self-sufficiency, why on earth would you choose real life? if you can have that. And then I think is the dilemma at the centre of this novel. I must admit, I did quite shamelessly uh, give to my heroine, Emily, my own uh, profound love of books. And this is, this is um, one of the few moments in the book where I let my own voice come through in Emily, and this is really what I want to say. One of the things I loved about being in love with books was the feeling of instant communion with someone engrossed in a well-loved title. I imagined they were inwardly replaying paragraphs, trying out phrases on their tongue, rewriting endings in their head when the heartbreak inflicted by the novelist was too great to be borne. Think Arcadi leaving Arena in the snow. Suella and I cried for a week. And that, in fact, is a true story. When I read Gorky Park, the ending was so intolerable to me that I ripped it out and wrote my own. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Serge. That was really fascinating. It's great. Um, our last speaker today, our last guest, is, is Andrew Nicholl from Scotland, 
whose novel The Good Mayor is here at the festival, available at the festival. This, yeah, this is a, a beautiful book, and it's a book that um, has melted the steely hearts of UK print and newspaper reviewers. Listen to some of these reviews. An exuberant whirlwind read with a glint of steel beneath, says The Guardian. The good mayor simply makes you want to go out and fall in love with someone, says The Sun. And one of the best books I have ever read. How's that for a newspaper review? It has a humour and lightness of touch that hooked me from the first page to the last, says The Daily Telegraph. Um, Andrew's notes say that he, uh, he wrote this novel over 18 months on the train journey um, from Edinburgh to Browdy Ferry where he lives uh, in, where, on the trip um, away from his wife and, and three children and, and The Good Mayor was named Scottish Book of the Month for May 2008. Um, I don't even have to kind of tell you that's probably one of those books you should go out and buy I think and uh, it's my pleasure to um, welcome Andrew today and to have a listen to what some of the things are that he considers his influences in his writing. Would you please welcome Andrew Nicholl. Well, after a, a puff like that and having heard these extremely erudite contributions, my fear that I'm here under false pretenses has only been doubled. <laughs> Since I arrived in Perth, I expect to hear the sirens of the fraud squad drawing up at any time. <laughs> so far, it hasn't happened. I will be found out, I know. I was very struck by feeling so much in tune with so many of the things that were said, but I'm going to be much briefer because I don't have these talents. But in an earlier session we were at, I think I made the point, if you want to write, you should read books. And if you want to read books, you should write. Because when you start to write one of your own, you suddenly see so much more about how they're made and it becomes so much more vivid. I've stressed over and over and over to my own children that literature is the finest achievement that humanity has ever come upon. You know, beyond anaesthetic, beyond penicillin, neither of which would have existed without writing because uh, it means that we don't have to learn everything again for ourselves. It's, it's written down, it's preserved. And beyond that, we all in our lives might know ten or a dozen people quite well. But if you have a book, you have an access to innumerable minds that go back for thousands and thousands of years, real and imaginary, and access to the condition of the human soul that without that you wouldn't have. And for me that started uh, in Grotty Ferry Public Library, uh, a little building on a little hill which is modelled on Le Petit Triagnon of Versailles. Uh, and it sounds like a great act of hubris to design a municipal public library to look like a palace but it's apt and now it stands on its little hill and it looks out across a car park and a public toilet and the railway line but if you look back the other way it's full of books well now it's mostly an internet cafe to tell the truth but at the time <laughs> it, was, it was full of books and that was an astonishing discovery for me uh, to learn that every book in the world was inside that room um, because if it wasn't there, you could ask the lady and she would send for it. <laughs> and it was amazing. So now I have to tell you what I've cut out from this nearly 50 years of reading books. And uh, as I say, that's, that's, that's a, a terrible thing to have to do, an enormous responsibility, because it seemed to me that being asked to speak about the books which have influenced and shaped me kind of made it sound as if I was up there on a level with these people, which I, I don't want you to think about for even one second. I, I've been, as I say, the fraud squad thing. I see from uh, the internet blog for this festival that I am apparently one of the world's foremost novelists, which for a bloke who's written one book, it's pretty astonishing. <laughs> and, and bodes well for my standing as one of the world's greatest lovers. <laughs> So, <laughs> keep up, sir, keep up. <laughs> when I was about eight years old, my, my cousins moved to Peru, which in itself sounds like the start of another, another novel. And before they went, they had a big clear-out of things that they couldn't possibly take on the boat. There was a huge orange tricycle, which was useful because even at that advanced age, I had not yet learned how to ride a bike. And there was a 
stamp album which once belonged to another cousin who was killed fighting the Japanese, or it might have belonged to my dad. And there was a copy of Treasure Island which might have belonged to him or might have belonged to my dad. It was an absolutely fabulous book. It was a fabulous book as an artifact. Uh, it just captivated me. Never mind the words. I fell in love with it from the map at the front. I don't know if you know, it's the, the shape of Treasure Island is actually drawn from the pond in Queen Street Gardens in Edinburgh, which Stevenson knew as a boy, and that drew you in and invited you to wander over every, over every step of this island. And there was the dedicatory poem to the reluctant purchaser hinting at what's to come, and page after page after page of these glorious illustrations. Uh, this Captain Billy Bones with his wizened apple face and his blue sea coat sitting in the Benbow Tavern, waiting fearfully for the arrival of the seafaring man with one leg. There was uh, Jim Hawkins himself, pierced to the mast with a dagger through his shoulder, and uh, Long John Silver limping up to the, the palisade to parley with the, the, the party, the, the, the non-mutineers party with a parrot on his shoulder. It was all just completely captivating. And of course the story was wonderful too, but it was far, far better than I knew, and only later when I read it again, and I've read it often, I think everybody should make an effort to read Treasure Island often, did I see all that's in that book. He wrote it on a wet holiday in Scotland with Fanny and his stepson Lloyd as an entertainment for Lloyd. But it's far, far more than a swashbuckling pirate story. This is a story about greed and corruption and how everybody gets tainted by it. it uh, the greed for gold infects the pirates who first did their murder to get it and are ready to do murder again for it. And it infects the estate workers, Dr. Livesey, Squire Trelawney, who are ready to murder them to get their hands on it too. So there's an awful lot in there that uh, far beyond the mere surface work. And when I came into man's estate, I so loved it. I had that book rebound in blue leather with marbled end papers and it sits on my shelf still and I take it down and I read it and I love it and it's just, that's fantastic. I've chosen that one as the tip of Stevenson's iceberg and he's Scottish of course but also because he's tight and succinct and simple and spare and I think that takes me back to what I said before that if you want to write books, you read them and if you want to read books, you write them. Um, it's an amazingly simple style, but when you start to unpick it, when you read it and you see what he's doing, astonishing, astonishing. And for exactly those reasons, I would also choose Graham Greene. Graham Greene was, to my mind, the greatest novelist writing in English in the 20th century, and if you reckon you can fight me, you can disagree with that. <laughs> but not... Ex-Lumberjack, so careful. <laughs> not 20 years after his death, he's on the shelf, as unread as the average Bible, if you look on eBay, you can buy Graham Greene first editions for pennies, and I know because I've got a shelf of them, uh, including the end of the affair with its one-letter dedication to the married woman who was not only his mistress, but also his goddaughter. The end of the affair is a closely packed novel which demonstrates everything that Greene had learned first as a short story writer, and it opens at the height of the London Blitz, where Greene himself had faced night after night of random death raining down from the skies rescuing victims from bombed buildings. The narrator Bendrix tells of his obsessive love for Catherine, the bored wife of a dull civil servant who lives close by, and how she dumped him and moved on to somebody else after their last meeting was interrupted by a bomb blast. <laughs> Naturally, he hates her. <laughs> so when the wronged husband tells him that he suspects Catherine is having an affair, Bendrix takes advantage of those suspicions to have her followed by a very down-at-heel private investigator. Green had that journalistic gift for packing information into a line, and don't ever underestimate that. There is not a single spare word in green, but every single page is packed with meaning and description, thought, and a deep understanding of the human condition. And it's only at the very end, on the very last pages, when we learn who Catherine's newest and last lover is, that this slight sad story begins to make sense. And it's not a trick. It's not a Geoffrey Archer corkscrew ending. He's just gradually walked us up a slope, and then when the fog clears, we find we're on a very high hill without ever realising how we got there, and it's just mm -hmm. so beautifully done. 
My last pick, excuse me. My last pick is this one from which I plan to read. It's the letter that was published in Italy as Il Gatto Pardo. Uh, and this book was an enormous touchstone for me. It was written by a guy called Giuseppe Tomas de Lampedusa, who was the last prince of Lampedusa. And Lampedusa is a tiny little outcrop of rock in the Mediterranean uh, between Malta and Libya and was once a stronghold of the Knights Hospitallers. And uh, Giuseppe Tomas ended up, as I say, as its last hereditary prince. And he wrote this book about his family, very thinly disguised about his family, and how this princely house was faced with the modernization of Italy, unification in 1860, the end of the deference that they had been used to, the rise of the merchant class when what you owned became more important than your pedigree. Uh, and it's absolutely astonishing. It's about the frailty of things. It's, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And he could not get it published to save his life. I couldn't get my book published to save my life. And it was such a comfort to know that somebody who had written this brilliant, brilliant book was equally confronted with the dolts who run the publishing industry. <laughs> and it, 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 it made me feel very happy indeed. And when he died unpublished, his wife, who still believes in him, took it out of a drawer and flogged it around every publishing house she could lay her hands on until eventually somebody realized it was a work of genius. Then it won any prize in, in Italy and you know, went into print around the world and remains what it is today. It's just something fantastic. And I'd like to read uh, from the very end of it. The, the, the point about this reading is that it, it begins in the, in the princely palace with the prince and his whole family and his uh, servants at family prayer. And then it ends up with him dead, the family much reduced uh, in the final days of the palace. When uh, the, the, the church authorities are now coming to inspect the private chapel where the book began. And you need to know that uh, Benedico, who's named in this, is the, the great hound, the mastiff, who was always at the heels of the prince in life. When they saw his eminence get out of his carriage, they realized that he was in informal dress. Only the tiny purple buttons on the severe black cassock indicated his high rank. In spite of his expression of injured goodness, the cardinal was no more imposing than the archpriest of Donifigata. He was polite, but cold, and mingled almost too ably a show of respect for the Selina name and the individual virtues of formalized devotions. To the Vicar General's exclamations about the beauty of the decorations in the rooms, he did not answer a word. He refused to accept any of the refreshments prepared for him. Thank you, Signorino. Only a little water. Today is the eve of my holy patron's feast day. He did not even sit down. He went to the chapel, genuflected a second. Then he blessed with pastoral benignity the mistresses of the house and the servants kneeling in the entrance hall and said to Conchetta, who bore in her face the signs of a sleepless night, Signorina, for three or four days, no divine service can be held in the chapel, but I will see that it is reconsecrated as soon as possible. It seems to me that the picture of the Madonna of Pompeii could well take the place of, one of the, the one now above the altar, which can join the fine works of art I've admired while passing through your rooms. As for the relics, I am leaving behind Don Paciotti, my secretary, and a most competent priest. He will examine the documents and tell you the results of his researches. And what he decides will be as if I decided it myself. He let everyone kiss his ring, then got into the heavy carriage together with his small suite. The carriages had not yet reached the falconeri turning before Carolina, with cheeks taut and darting eyes, exclaimed, This Pope must be a Turk, while Caterina had to be given smelling salts. <laughs> Meanwhile, Conchetta was chatting calmly to Don Paciotta, who had in the end accepted a cup of coffee. Then the priest asked for the keys of the case to the documents, requested permission, and withdrew into the chapel, after first taking from his bag a small hammer and saw, a screwdriver, a magnifying glass, and a couple of pencils. He had been a pupil of the Vatican School of Paleography, and he was also a Piedmontese. His labors were long and meticulous. The servants who passed by the chapel door heard the knocks of a hammer, the squeak of screws and sighs. Three hours later, he re-emerged with his cassock full of dust and his hands black, but with a pleased look, and a serene expression on his bespectacled face. He apologized for carrying a big wicker basket. I took the liberty of appropriating this to put in what I discarded. May I set it down here? And he placed his burden in a corner, overflowing with torn papers and cards, 
little boxes containing bits of bone and gristle. I am happy to say that I have found five relics which are perfectly authentic and worthy of being object of devotion. The rest are there, he said, pointing at the basket. Could you tell me, Signorina, where I can brush myself down and wash my hands? Conchetta withdrew into her room. She felt no emotion whatsoever. She seemed to be living in a world known to her yet strange, which had already seeded all the impulses it could give her, and now consisted only of pure form. The portrait of her father was just a few square inches of canvas, the green cases just a few square yards of wood. A short while later she was brought a letter. The envelope had a black seal with a big coronet in relief. Still she could feel nothing. The inner emptiness was complete, but she did sense an unpleasant atmosphere, exhaling from a heap of furs. That was today's distress. Even poor Bendico was hitting at bitter memories. She rang the bell. Annette, she said, this dog has really become too moth-eaten and dusty. Take it out and throw it away. As the carcass was dragged off, the glass eye stared at her with the humble reproach of things that are thrown away and got rid of. A few minutes later, what remained of Bendico was flung into a corner of the courtyard, visited every day by the dustman. During the flight down from the window, its form recomposed itself for an instant. In the air, there seemed to be a dancing, a quadruped with long whiskers, its right foreleg raised in imprecation. Then all found peace in a heap of livid dust. Thank you very much, Andrew. Now, we did have every intention of leaving some time at the end of this session to allow you to ask the authors some questions, but just checking my timekeeper's watch here, I see that uh, it's just been too interesting and we've run out of time, I'm afraid. Thank you so much for your attention. It's been really interesting and lovely to have you. Thank you. You have been listening to the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival podcast series. Brought to you by 720 ABC Perth. This recording was taken during the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival and has been made possible by the Perth International Arts Festival.